Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Rincon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. And welcome to the Eternal Optimist podcast, Mr. Christopher Veal, all the way from California. Christopher, how are you today, my friend? I am very glad to be here, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation, Matt. Yeah, well, me too. Well, I ask you this. Why are you glad to be here, and why are you looking forward to this conversation of all the conversations you could be having right now? Why this one, and why are you glad to be here? Well, why am I glad to be here? I think, oddly enough, it's the eternal optimist, and I believe I am very much an optimist in life. I tend to look at the glasses half full and things as opportunities to learn more so than challenges that need to hold me back. So that's one of the reasons. And just in the brief few minutes that we've been talking, part of me says, this is a guy that's going to be a great conversation. Sweet. Sweet. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, my words of affirmation, guys. So you, 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 oh, I didn't know you, that. So there you go. My spidey sense told me. So there you go. <laughs> You're awesome, Matt. Did you know that? <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Now, now I'm all lit up. This is good. This is good. So for those out there, let me give you a little context here on Christopher. A couple things. Number one is that he's phenomenal. We've had an excellent conversation so far before we turn the microphone on. And he has his own podcast, the Vulnerable Man Podcast. We're going to have a real authentic, real deep conversation today. He has a book, The Whole Man Journey. You know, he is an author, a former Marine officer, a combat veteran, a TEDx speaker. You can find all these things out. You go to him online. He is a black man with 25 years of experience in leadership and talent development. You know, and he is an amazing human being so far. So let's <laughs> dive deep. But let me ask you this, because when I read the bio here, can I say <laughs> black man with 25 years? Is that okay for you to say black man? Or I, is that I own the title, so I don't have a problem with it. And if somebody okay. else does, if they have a problem with you saying it, then come talk to me. So there you go. Okay, I'll send you to my combat veteran bouncer friend there you over go, here, right? Christopher. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, let's first dive in into deep end. I love to ask the question first: Is what's the hardest thing that you've had to go through or, or been through, experience in your life, Christopher? Let's start there. Yeah, just that small question, right? Oh, you know, yeah. And I knew this question was coming because I've listened to several episodes. And I think what I would say is being more selfish. And that sounds really shallow, but let me explain. A lot of my life, I really focused on putting other people's needs before mine. I would always make sure I took care of others. And for me, I felt that was what I had to do. And that's not to knock being a caregiver or taking care of others. But what would happen is I would often put myself not even third or fourth on the list, but on the next page that didn't even get to. And the way that it got in the way in my life sometimes is it would build resentment. So sometimes because I didn't make myself a priority, I wouldn't ask for the things that I wanted or needed. And then I would get frustrated when people didn't give me those things that I wanted or needed, yet I expected them to be mind readers. So I say it's been a challenge and it, it's still an ongoing thing because while I've gotten better, there's still times where I step into some of those old behaviors of not advocating for what I want and need. And what it does is it keeps me from wanting to connect more. And what I do is I end up putting up walls 
I know where it comes from. My grandfather was a farmer, you know, emigrated from Canada and hardworking and I love him for it. My uncle, farmer as well. And so because of that, there was a lot of this approach of you knuckle up, you do the hard work and you don't complain about it. And I get that's how those men were raised. But I took that example on and I thought, oh, that's what I need to do. I need to be taking care of others and never complain if it's hurting me. And so that's why I say that's one of the toughest challenges I've ever overcome is because when I did that, it caused me to not be authentic in my relationships with people. And it caused me to actually step away from relationships that might have been beneficial to me. What I'm hearing, and I think I grew up similar, I think what I'm hearing is that you grew up in a family that it was hard work, nose to the grindstone, don't complain, just get Mm -hmm. it done and keep it to yourself inside, protect, provide. And so what's an example of one of the first relationships that may have been damaged or shattered as a result of this old school thinking that we grew up with? So I'm divorced. And when I look back, it takes two to tango. And there were things that we both struggled with in the relationship. But what I realized is for a number of years in that marriage, I wasn't always asking for what I needed. And so as a result, again, I had to do some caretaking. My ex-wife had some medical challenges she was dealing with. But through the whole process, I would continually, like I say, put myself way down the list. And I wouldn't make time to nurture myself too. And so what that did is it caused me to burn out. And most importantly, where it happened, my mother in 2014 was diagnosed with cancer in early 2014. Between January of that year, or February, it was January when she was diagnosed, and December of that year when she passed away, she lived in Calgary in Alberta. I'm in California. So I was traveling back and forth as much as I could because I'm an only child. So I felt the obligation to be there and care for her as much as I could. I had a wife and a young daughter that I had to be home for to take care of them. I had a job. I was the primary breadwinner for our family. So I also was of the mindset, I've got to keep my job because if I don't, we don't have an income and trying to juggle all of that. And the problem was I fell into that stereotypical man box of I've got to do it all, like suck it up, nose of the grindstone, like you said, and don't ask for help. And it burned me out to the point that I wasn't really able to be there for anyone. And I just continued to shoulder it. It wasn't until after my mother passed away that I really realized how much I had fried myself as a result of it. And what I say is one of the big lessons I learned is if I had started asking for help sooner, there were so many people in my world that wanted to help. I burned through all my leave at work and started to the point where I almost had to take unpaid time off. And when my boss said, what's going on? I finally opened up and said, here's what's going on. And she said to me, I wish I had known this months ago because we have things in place that could have helped you with it. And it was one of those moments where I was like, hey, clue phone, Christopher, it's for you. And because I was in that mindset of I've got to do it all, like I said, suck it up and real men don't ask for help. I lost out so much of that and it could have given me more opportunity to be back there and support my mother too. So that's one place where I know it's impacted me. And I remind myself of that story often so that I keep checking in and go, all right, Christopher, where do you need to ask for help in this moment? And have you done it? Was there any point that the stress or the pressure was getting so much that you wanted to ask for help and you didn't know how or you felt ashamed or guilty or some feeling that you kind of kept way down there? It's not so much that I didn't know how to ask for help. Here's the irony of it. I'm one of those people that when you have a conversation with me, usually at some point I'll say, how can I help you or how can I be of service? Some of my friends joke with me about it and give me a hard time, but that's just how I am. And when somebody says to me, how can I help you, Christopher? I'm usually like, I'm good. And I don't ask for anything, even if I do need it. Somebody once said to me, what's it like when someone asks you for help and you're able to give it? And I said, well, it feels great. It's like a gift. And they said, so why wouldn't you let other people have that gift? And I was like, oh, you just used my words against me. And so that's what helps keep me grounded now. The other thing that I think I would say, and I I really want to encourage people, especially men, we struggle with this more, I think, is you can't be attached to the response. 
And that's what held me up a lot is I was worried if I asked for help and somebody says no, it would feel like it was a rejection. What I've learned since then is that's not necessarily that because there's been times where somebody said to me, Christopher, can you help me with something? And I've had to say, I can't right now. And then we get to be in conversation about it. But I collapse the idea that if I ask and I get a no, that's a rejection of me. And so now I'm in a place where I'm more comfortable asking and saying, hey, I need help. And I know that sometimes people will say yes, sometimes they will say no, but that's not a judgment of who I am as a person or our relationship. Yeah. So I'd frame to throw out there for all our <laughs> listeners, Christopher and I, and anything that we're talking about, there's no judgment from us mm -hmm. towards anyone listening about how you have responded, how you are, or how you plan on responding to any of these things. We simply want to put out there that this is the way things were. This is a real challenge for him. And right. he's worked through that and still working on it. So vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yes. that's, yep. <laughs> this is a crazy idea. <laughs> modeling the vulnerable man here on the Internal Optimist <laughs> podcast. So I wonder about, you know, so much hard stuff going on in 2014. And I've lost a parent to a tragedy as well. So I can relate in some way. I'm thinking about that particular year. And when your mother finally passed away at the end of the year in 2014, I wonder, was that kind of the straw that broke the camel's back that told you that now I've got to be able to change and I've got to be able to either ask for help or be a little more vulnerable? Or when did the spidey sense go off and I actually started to be that vulnerable man and start to ask? I'd like to say that's when it happened and it wasn't. I still was kicking and screaming because then it was a matter of having to deal with her estate and everything. And it was probably a few months later and I had still been having to travel back and forth, handling her estate, closing things out. I talk about this in my TED talk, but I would steal moments just to have solitude because I also felt like I have to be this rock for my family. And I remember I was sitting in the bathroom. I just couldn't hold it anymore. And I was overwhelmed and I just started crying. And my daughter came in. Actually, she knocked on the door huh. and then came in, which was unusual because she usually didn't. But it was really powerful because for me, as she walked in and saw me crying for a moment, a part of me was screaming in my head, stop crying. Like, don't do that. I just, I knew I couldn't keep doing that anymore. And so I just let it happen. And I shared with her, you know what, I'm just really sad because I miss grandma. And she just walked up and put her arms around me and hugged me and wow. said, you know, I miss her too, Papa. I think that was a big part of the shift for me where I was like, okay, I can let myself be real. And not like I expected my daughter was going to reject me, but it started to have me go, all right, I can let go of all this BS that I have to be the stoic, unfazed thing. That's what really got me starting to explore this idea of vulnerability. So as you mentioned in the intro, I spent nine years in the Marine Corps, and that's not necessarily a touchy-feely organization. I got out of the Marine Corps, went into construction doing project management. Not a place where guys sit around saying, hey, how you doing, buddy? Let's talk. Are you feeling sad? That doesn't happen. I shouldn't say it doesn't happen. It didn't happen in my experience. And so there was very much this particular type of masculinity that I had been subjected to for many years. And while I was successful in both of those careers, I also didn't get to bring all of myself. I felt like I had to bring a part of me. And so that, and then discovering Brene Brown's work when she was starting to talk more and more about vulnerability, had me go, wait a minute, what's my relationship with it? And had me start to look at what were some of the ideals I had around what it meant to be a man that were serving me and the ones that were getting in the way? And that's when the snowball effect started to happen. And again, I won't say I immediately was able to ask people for help a lot, but I was leaning into it more. And I think the big difference for me is when someone would offer help, I would be less likely to go to that automatic response of, no, I'm good. And I would say, yeah, sure. Here's how you can help me. Wow. So it was a journey. It was a journey. And at the beginning of that journey, in a moment of transformation, real pain, it, it was you and your daughter helping you. 
and mm-hmm. you didn't necessarily ask for it and maybe even didn't nope. want it. it, it <laughs> I, and- I, I probably resisted it initially. Internally, yeah. that dialogue had me go, nope, push back. And then I was just like, I can't. Yeah. Like, I knew I just didn't have the energy to push back anymore. Yeah. I'm trying to think back to my life. I only saw my dad when he was living for 58 and a half years. I only saw him cry once. And that was at his dad's funeral. That was the only time I ever saw him cry. I'm not surprised to hear that because, you know, so in 2015, I started interviewing men one-on-one around this subject of vulnerability and what gets in the way. There's been hundreds or maybe even thousands of men I've talked to since then. And one of the common themes is similar to what you said, like guys saying, I don't remember seeing my dad cry, or I maybe saw him cry once or twice. And that's not a knock on those men. Like, I really want to be clear about that because they were operating off the models that they saw. But that's also why I'm a stand for the work that I'm doing now is how do we expand and show more ways that men can be men that isn't just this narrow... I got to be an alpha male, win at all costs, never lose, never ask for help and conquer everything. Wow. How are you saying I love you and being able to receive I love you from other men or from other friends or how are you with that? Awesome with that. So my best friend, I tell him every time we talk, we tell each other I love you. And it's not weird. I mean, I think probably the first time or two I said it or he said it, it felt a little weird. But one of the things that I've realized is we often don't hear that from the people in our lives as much as we think. It feels automatic with people we're in romantic relationships or family sometimes, but I tell a number of my friends, I love you. And for me, part of what I need to do was pull apart some of the ways that we collapse love here, and I'll say in North America, in our culture, when people say love, we often think of it in a romantic or sexual way. And actually it's separate from that. So I can tell somebody I love them, And it doesn't mean that there's some physical desire or anything like that. Like it's a genuine love for them as a human. And when I really embraced that, it had me go, I can tell more people in my life I love them. The other thing that helped me with it is I used to think we had this finite capacity for love. I don't know where I got that belief, but if you say you love this person, that means you can't love other people. And what I know is we have an infinite capacity for love. It's not like there's only this much in my tank. And like, if I give it this much to that someone, they don't get any more. I got more than I need for everyone. And so the power of telling someone I love you also shares the message of like, you're important to me and I care about you. Yeah. When you say infinite capacity for love, that concept really just kind of lights me up. And I'm wondering, can you walk us through kind of what you mean by infinite capacity for love? And yeah. Yeah. You know, I think here's what I'll say. We often look at it like I only have so much to give. And I think that's just this construct that I don't know where it came from, but it's just not true. Who's to say if I love this person that I can't love someone else? Again, separate from a romantic context, which is where we often go. And I think that's the important piece is you have to be able to step back from that. But I've had people that I've worked with that I've become really close with that I can say, I love you. And it doesn't feel weird or awkward because they also know I'm not coming from that place of it being romantic. So I think to your question of the concept of an infinite capacity, it's not like there's, like I said, I don't know how to describe it. It's not like there's a finite amount and that it depletes. What I also know is the more that I give love into the world, the more I get back. And so that also fills me up. As you talked about your love language, words of affirmation, right? That idea of filling someone's love tank, I think it can apply beyond our primary and and romantic relationships. I look at how can I show my daughter that I love her in different ways so that she feels loved, not just the way that I think I should be showing it. Why can't I say to the person of the girl, I don't know that I would at the grocery store, hey, I love you, but even in the way I behave towards them, I can show appreciation for them. And so that's what really shifted my thinking around things. So I don't know if I answered the question. I I tend to ramble sometimes. So if I didn't, you can ask me again. 
No, I yeah. think so. I think infinite capacity for love. I'm exploring this subject as I've become more comfortable with what I would call you know, my vulnerability or transparency, just being real to other humans. It feels like infinite capacity is, as you say, I have a lot to give. And I'm not talking give in terms of my time for business, which is my mind always goes to business things. It always goes to spending quality time with my wife or my kids. But the energy and what I would call the love that I give out to people, that is unlimited. And I can give that and spread that to everyone. And it can be someone who's that upset driver out there driving by, share a little love with them. And I wish good things to them. I'm not wishing hate upon them. Or it could be that person who is screaming something really negative that's now a meme on Twitter. You know, I'm not hating on that person. I want to share some empathy or love for them with a boundary of sorts, because there does come a boundary where if it's something that's attacking my family, then I've got to protect my family. My love tank is, I'd say, willing to share. So you took us for a moment where your daughter, and how old was your daughter at the time when this this incident happened in the bathroom? Oh, so this is like early 2015. So she would have been not quite six. Wow. Five, maybe. Probably five going on six. This is my aha, like light bulb moment is going off that my six-year-old daughter can teach me something when I'm open to the possibility of that. She unlocks something magical in you. I found that to be a nugget of wisdom is that we can learn from them even. Well, here's something that might bake your noodle as well is not just just your six-year-old, but anybody Mm. can teach us something if we're open to it. Every interaction is an opportunity for us to learn about ourselves if we choose to be open to it. When you say be open to it, what's your filter in your thinking that is open to learning from every person you might come in contact with, Christopher? Part of it is owning your own stuff. Sometimes we get so caught in this mindset of I'm a victim and the world is doing these things to me and all these people are doing these things to me. And that's not to say that there's not bad stuff out in the world. But if I go through life with a filter of poor me, then all I'm ever going to see is that I'm a victim and people are taking advantage of me and that I'm never responsible. Any interaction, there's two people involved. And if you're willing to look at and go, what's my part in this? To me, then that has you open to, okay, and so what's the opportunity to learn in this? And it doesn't mm. mean that, and let me be clear, I don't go around every moment of every day going, please, somebody teach me and I want to learn. I need a break sometimes too. But particularly when I'm dealing with things sometimes, or maybe a challenging person, instead of letting myself get triggered, or I shouldn't say let myself, we sometimes get triggered and we can't help it. But when I realize, okay, what do I want? I can sometimes stop that amygdala hijack and go, okay, so I can choose to react, which probably may not get the result I want. But what do I really want to say like a year, five years, 10 years from now about this? And that has me sometimes go, okay, take a breath. How do I want to show up here? I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, Crucial Conversations. If you haven't, okay, great. Yeah. I was going (laughs) to say like, to me, that was transformation. I used to teach that content. And I'll tell you, that has been so impactful in probably personal relationships more than professional ones. And for me, it's that question of what do I really want? And then how would I behave if that was the case? And that has me kind of go, oh, I was being a jerk a moment ago. And now that it's like more important for me to connect with this person and have them feel like I respect them, I'm not going to say that thing that I wanted to say a moment ago. Mm. Now, it doesn't always work. Let me be clear. I don't always get it right because I am human. And more often than not, that has me go, let me pump the brakes. And instead of saying that thing that might destroy or damage that relationship in a serious way, I can go, okay, wait, let me pause and see how do I really need to be in this space? Mm. 
I love you mentioned crucial conversations. It's one of the tenets of my coaching practices at right. page 45. You know, get ready to go in there and have that conversation of what do I want for me? What do I want for the relationship? Yep. And how do I help yep. make that happen? Yep. And I, 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 I love, love that you book. know the page number too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I frequent that book often in, in the compendium. So I think for me, it ties back to one of my core values, which is curiosity. Yeah. Yep. And the challenge I used to have in being vulnerable or being able to accept feedback from others would be that people keep saying the same thing to me, that you're living life through your lens. We're all, always living things on your terms or you're here and you're listening, but you don't ever hear me. And when I started to shift to Covey, seek first to understand yep. and be understood, yep. that's when the concept of vulnerability really started to open up for me because I was totally seeing things only through my lens. It feels like you were able to let it out into the world once your daughter empowered you to make that breakthrough. And now you are genuinely curious about how you might be able to learn from anybody. You don't have to go around thinking, I'm, what can I learn from everyone all the time? But you're set to listen and hear now more than before. Right. So I yep. feel. So I am curious for you, as you were starting to hear those things more and shift the way you were showing up, what was the impact on your relationships? I'm married now and we've been married <laughs> going on 10 years. You know, And this was it. This was, this was the challenge. It was every relationship I ever had before this personally with women. It was, you're always married to your phone. You're always married to your business. And I always said the same thing. I'm doing this for us. We want this wealth. This is the price of success paid in full in advance. It's the hours I've got to put in to do this. And that was it. That was it. It was always that came first to the detriment of it. And I even put them in front of my mom, my dad and family members, business first. And that was the way it showed up. And when I had that big shift, when my dad suddenly died Memorial Day 2005, Wow. Everything shifted and it takes sometimes a tragedy or it takes a yeah. cataclysmic event in our lives to help us see something we didn't see before. And yeah. that was the big event for me. You know, it was wow. that. So that was the worst day of my life. And now it's led to some of the best things that have happened, right? Turn that hardship into your success. That was really it. And that I think points to the point that I was just making. Like you were open to hearing it. You could have just as easily gone to look at this terrible thing that happened. And it just proves that I got to keep doing the things that I'm doing. But what I'm making up there is like, even when that happened and your dad passed, and I don't know anybody who would say, oh, my parents passing is a good thing. But you were able to look at it and go, okay, as terrible as this was, what does it mean to me and how do I want to show up differently? And so I think you were open to the lesson in it, even if it was hard. And I never tell people it's easy. Sometimes it will be hard and it's going to be worth it. Yes. And so well, the part of the story is that I was 28 when that happened and I wasn't able to get to a place of seeing things through others' lenses until I was 38. Yep. So it didn't happen like yep. overnight it at took that some moment. Time. Yep. It took yeah. 10 years later. Then it's like, I woke <laughs> yeah. up one day, I was like, man, <laughs> uh, I'm a highly functioning workaholic. Right. I'm a recovering perfectionist. My dad died of working hard and stress mm -hmm. because of that. And yeah. He was doing great on so many yep. standards. By the external own. standards of success, he was doing it, yeah. right? And as Dr. Yeah. Phil would say, and how's that working for you? Yeah, it led him to his grave early. And worst day, worst experience, it's led to this learning that I don't want to go to the grave early to the best of my ability. So that's why... I coach recovering perfectionists and yeah. highly functioning workaholics <laughs> to keep things simple and be present. And yeah. I sense this energy about you that you're like cool well, and comfortable. It's funny you say that. I was listening to your conversation with Andrew Miller recently, and, and there was a term you used that I love. Practice makes progress, not practice makes perfection. And that really hit home because I use a similar term. I say, look for progress, not perfection. Because you want to try and get incrementally better, but we often 
in our society expect that overnight success. And nobody is ever that. What you don't see is the months or weeks or years of hard work that went in before. We just see the success and we go, well, they did it. Why can't I? And we put this crazy pressure on ourselves, but I'm going on a tangent. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's go to your podcast. I mean, Vulnerable Man Podcast. When did you start that and why... Is that the title? Why? Why that? Yeah. The short answer, I was, like I said, I've been interviewing men since 2015. And I started with just like five or six questions centered around vulnerability. And in particular, what gets in the way of vulnerability for them with other men. And it was to help me understand kind of how other men thought about it. I talked to men from all walks of life, all sexual orientations, different ethnic, cultural, race, like you name it. And as I talked with them, one of the common themes was, A lot of the reasons that men weren't vulnerable on other men is there was shame or there was fear of judgment. Those were the two core groups of things. And I would often say, so if a good buddy of yours shared something he was struggling with, how would you feel? And almost every guy would say something effective like, I'd have so much respect for him, or I'd feel proud, or I'd appreciate that he trusted me with it, things along those themes. And then I'd say, for you, if you're vulnerable, you think people are going to judge you. And then I'd sit back. And I'd hear the gears turning and all of a sudden the light bulb would come on. And a lot of the times what it was is we were telling ourselves these stories that vulnerability in me is a weakness, but vulnerability in someone else is a strength. And so as I was having these conversations, I realized I love that I'm being able to help some of these men discover their journey along the path, but I'm talking one-on-one. And if I really want to create a bigger impact and help shift the narrative, I need to do something different. And so I said, all right, I'm going to start a podcast. And that was a very vulnerable act because I knew nothing about podcasts. So I had to practice what I preach. And I leaned into my community and said, I don't know anything about a podcast, but I want to start one. Anybody can help me. And I was very fortunate that, again, somebody in my community said, I've been podcasting since it was a thing. Let me help you out. And he took me under his wing and helped me get all that together. And it all came to me, the idea of the podcast. I was interviewing a man. It was a Monday morning in May. I don't remember which May it was in 2020, but I said, I need to do a podcast. And so July of that year, it launched. The reason I chose The Vulnerable Man is partially because that's part of who I'm trying to be in the world. And I also wanted something that might have people go, what? Because often men think of vulnerability as a four-letter word that you don't say in mixed company. I also wanted to bust that myth. And and really, it's about the goal of destigmatizing the word vulnerability for men so that we can be in better relationship with ourselves and others and be a solution to what ails the world. Yeah. Well, what does that mean to you? What is vulnerable man? If I were to say that is a vulnerable man, then what would be the qualities that person expresses and how they show up? Yeah. So here's one of the things I've learned, and I'll give you my definition. But one of the great things that I've discovered in it is I've had a lot of guests that have me think differently about the word vulnerable. So I will give you Christopher's definition. And what I always say is the asterisk on it is your mileage may vary. And whatever it means to you is just fine. So for me, it's about the willingness to be open and real and be myself, not necessarily close off because I'm worried about how I might be received. Now, what I also say is I don't just openly share every single aspect of my life with everyone that I meet. As you said before, you talk about boundaries. And so there are places where I know with some people I can be very vulnerable. And in other places, I might dial back how much I'm willing to bring, and I judge it based on who I'm interacting with. But what I do lean towards is I'm willing to bring a little more vulnerability in a conversation and be the one to go first, because what I find is more often than not, when someone else is vulnerable, it has us be a little more willing to be vulnerable. And so that's been a journey for me as well, is how do I continue to do it? 
one of the things that I really lean into is people hear, oh, he's a former Marine, a combat veteran. He was in construction. So they already have this picture that they're painting of what this guy is going to be like. And then when I show up with vulnerability, especially I do a lot of coaching with executives. And when I have particularly men that I'm working with, and they again have that picture that they paint, oh, Marine construction. And then I show up with vulnerability. It has them kind of go, whoa, if this guy can do it, why can't I? And so that almost shortcuts a lot of the stuff that we would normally need to do and has them be able to step into it in a more powerful way. Mm. Man, I love the words you shared, willing to go first. I respect that so much. Somebody's got to go first. And if you're speaking to a group of people or you're speaking one-on-one to a CEO, how do you model going first? If you could share like an example of that. Yeah, you know, it depends on the context. So I think part of it is I'm going to read into the conversation that we're having and I might be willing to share something that, especially in a business sense, there's usually certain things you don't talk about. Like we only, this is the lane we stay in when we're professional and at work. I don't know why I put on my professional work voice. And sometimes, <laughs> right? Like, it's like, we have to be a certain way. And, and the visual here on the screen, by the way, right? we just, we just put the, put yeah, the well, that's right. Because some of you aren't looking, but we're, we're looking at each other. So it makes sense to me. <laughs> but I think what it might be is being willing to share somewhere where maybe I've had a struggle. Maybe I'm talking with a CEO or a CFO or somebody, some senior leader, and they're maybe hinting at a challenge they're having. For me, what might be vulnerable is saying, wow, like sharing something, while it's not similar, and it's not to say, oh, me too type of thing, I've experienced it, but sharing where I've had a struggle, it almost normalizes and goes, you know, it's okay that you're struggling. One of the things that I spend a lot of time working with senior leaders about is they often feel like they have to have all the answers. When you reach a certain level, it's like everyone expects me to have all the answers. And I remind them, nobody expects that. The only one putting that pressure on is you. The challenges that your organization is dealing with, they're complex. And so sometimes having them just get to the point of saying, I don't have all the answers and I'm willing to be in the conversation, that can be transformational because it's like they lift that weight off their back of they've got to figure everything out. To the question you asked, it will depend, but it may just be me being willing to open up or sometimes even saying, Wow, that thing you just said, that feels heavy. And I know my heart feels heavy hearing it. And then coming back to them and like, what's going on for you? So that could be some ways that it shows up. Mm, I appreciate the wording. My heart feels heavy hearing that. And I don't know if everyone uses those types of words to gain that trust. And I love the way you did that. I love that. Well, part of what you're pointing to as well is I'm going to tell people, find what works for you too. I'm okay using that kind of language. Great. If that doesn't work for you, find the words. Here's what it is at the core. It's letting that person know you care about them. I hear you and I care. And that in itself can be a vulnerable thing because showing that you care or telling someone that you care, that's a little bit scary because if they come back and say, I don't care or I don't want you to or get away, like that's a risk we're opening ourselves up to. But ultimately... If we don't, and we're not willing to go first, actually somebody, a guest of mine recently said, it's the gift of going first. So when someone else goes first, we get to hear it, but then it gives us space to then go second if we want to. And I was like, oh, I like that. The gift of going first. Yeah. Ooh. Or he, I think they called it the gift of going second, but it's the same core concept. That is a nugget right there. The gift of going second can be inspired or that can happen when you go first. So how might we be able to put down our guard and go first? One step at a time, if we have trouble going first out there, uh, mm -hmm. but certainly get to the edge of the pool and put a toe in, put a leg yep. in. Maybe eventually when you're, when you're schooled at this, you just freaking <laughs> cannonball in and, and go nuts. But I love the gift of going second. 
you know, yeah. something that works well for me in the coaching practice that I think you're extracting here, I want to share it, is I, I was on a call with a CEO this morning and we were talking about there's a big project they have coming up and they're so overwhelmed with so many things right now, they're not able to get to work on that project. And the people that are expecting it, they're just sitting there, they're waiting for them to work on it. And I share an example. You know what? I used to keep all the big decisions bottled up for me and my company. The result of that is that my top people never felt that they were trusted because I always had to filter everything. So one day I forwarded this big project that we're working on in our coaching company. I forged another coach. They took it. They ran with it. They had all the great ideas. They put the proposal together. They made the sales pitch and we got a huge contract. I didn't have to do anything except for empower them to do it. Yeah. Right? And by the end of the conversation, my client's saying, well, how might I empower them to do it? So they started to ask the question. So I feel that going first and sharing our personal testimony is important. And to our listeners out there, where might you be able to go first and share your personal testimony of what is hard for you as a way of maybe opening that gate for others to feel comfortable sharing what their hardship is? I think where I would point people is this is something that also took me time to really wrap my head around, but don't be attached to how it's received. And so when I started these conversations, there were times where I would show some vulnerability and I could physically see other men like lean back or check out because they weren't ready to have that. And for a while that had me go, oh, like I would actually, I would kind of sit back and go, oh, what did I do wrong? as I kind of dove into it, talked with my coach as well, what I realized was it's not about me. So their response is a testament to where they are on their journey. (laughs) There's life intruding. (laughs) But what it also is, is it was like, okay. So what I had to understand too, is not everybody's at the same place on their journey as I am. So how do I still stay true to who I am and how I want to show up and accept that they may not be there. And for some men, they don't want to be anywhere near it. I've had some guys like, they don't want to have conversation with me anymore cool. I am never going to force someone to be vulnerable, but I'm also not going to change how I show up just because you're uncomfortable with it. So what I'd say to people is find where you are. And if you find that you're around people that aren't willing to really accept your vulnerability, you might want to think about some different people to be around because guess what? There's people out there that want it. Don't let your growth and development be stunted by others that aren't willing to. I'm with you. And that's, that can be so challenging because I found that in some friend circles that, you know, I'd get around to some of the same people. And every time it was just complain, 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 the problem, the problem, the problem. And I'd ask the question, have you ever realized what the source of the problem could be? Have you ever considered owning it and seeing if you look at yourself? Mm. how you might be causing or contributing to the problem. And when I get to that line of questioning, I got to take the coach hat off because no, no one's ready to have, certain people aren't ready to have that conversation. Well, and even with that too, someone who might be complaining, if you ask them to look in the mirror and they're not ready to do it, they're definitely going to shut down. But another way to possibly say is like, wow, like I know I struggled too. And again, some of those people aren't going to be open to it. But what I'm trusting is there's a lot more, and I'll say men in particular, that want to be able to be more vulnerable and show more vulnerability. And it's whether they feel safe or not in doing it. And so what I would encourage you, whether you are a man or you have a man in your life, if they do that, just let it be. There's nothing you need to do with it. One of the things that there's a number of men I've talked to that sometimes when they struggle, they've had their partners in their lives, their, you know, the women in their lives that have not known what to do when these men are vulnerable. There's someone I had on as a guest and he said he went on a date once on the first date and he got fairly vulnerable and she ghosted him. So part of what it is, is we also need to look at what's the narrative that women are being brought up with, because 
even though there's a lot of women that say they want men to be more vulnerable, there's also this unconscious, but I want them to be that rock, to be solid, to have the answers. And so when men sometimes show vulnerability, it's like, whoa, 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 that, that's not what I want. And they don't know how to be with it too. So we've got a grace for everybody in this process. It's not going to change overnight. Dude, I love that grace, a little bit of patience and grace yeah. for everyone, including yeah. ourselves and including yes, our especially. ladies or our mm -hmm. teammates or mm -hmm. our kids and or yes, everyone. Can you talk about your book for a little while? I mean, I, it's been sitting in the background. <laughs> I can see this beautiful, the whole man evolving yeah. masculinity. The book is in the background. So talk a little bit about what inspired you to write that book and just a little bit about it, please. Well, the book at its core, it looks at what holds men in unhealthy masculinity in the 21st century. And part of that is what keeps us from feeling safe in embracing greater vulnerability in our lives. I look at some of the outdated views and constructs around being a man that keep us closed off from our emotions. And I ultimately bring a message of we need to evolve in how we hold masculinity. And that evolution requires us keeping the parts of ourselves that still serve and getting rid of the things that don't. So in nature, when things evolve, they keep the elements that they need, but then they adapt or adopt new behaviors in order to thrive in that new environment. And that's part of what we're talking about. A key piece of the book is this idea of, I say, we shift from either or thinking around what it means to be man and move into a both and. So you're a coach, you know this concept, but a lot of my life I was in this mindset of either I can be a breadwinner or I can be a caregiver. Either I can be strong and independent or I can ask for help. And, and the list goes on and on. When you think about the rules of the man box, I can't show affection or care or weakness or any of that stuff. So I looked at the portrayals of men that I'd witnessed over time, whether it was in my own life growing up, uh, I grew up without a father, my parents divorced when I was early, to my time in the Marine Corps and in construction, and also looking at some of the society and media influences around masculinity. And I realized that there were parts of it that spoke to me, but there were other parts that just felt like they were confining me. And again, as I said, I've been talking to men, interviewing them for years, and that was a large part of it. In the book, what I talk about is how do we move from this unhealthy masculinity, which you know stems into toxic masculinity and a lot of things that happen there. It shows up a lot in politics, right? There's this polarization of things. And so how do we get away from that mindset of, I have to posture and win at all costs. I can never ask for help. I can never show weakness. I can never concede because that's giving in. And how do I step into a place of, okay, I can hold my own beliefs and I can hear what you believe and what's important to you too, without it meaning that I believe what you believe too. So Whew. yeah, that, yes. there's a little bit, but to the thing that really inspired me in this, it was my journey. And it was also because I want my daughter to grow up in a world where the healthy masculinity is the rule, not the exception. Now, I may not get there in my lifetime, but you can guarantee I'm gonna be working every day I can to move the needle in that direction. You just dropped the biggest knowledge bomb on us, and this is what I took. I wrote down either or in the rules of the man box. You know, and I would ask our listeners out there who are men, and even our female listeners out there who are around men, whether it's their fathers or husbands, significant other sons, whoever it might be, what are the rules of the man box that yeah. you're seeing that they play by? Right? Yep. So that might be something to consider. Yes. And how and, are they perpetuating it? And how are they perpetuating it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we all have a part in it. It's almost that silent by consent or non-action. So if I'm seeing unhealthy masculinity and I don't say anything about it and I don't call it out, I'm implicit in it continuing then. Like I'm basically condoning it. So it's also, how do I call it out whether I'm a man or woman or however I identify, how do I help point out when there's instances of unhealthy masculinity and how do I help 
usher in more of a conversation around healthy masculinity. Mm, I want to help point out instances of unhealthy masculinity and help might I help usher in a positive, vulnerable, like real, what we would say is evolving masculinity. So I love the questions. I'd say that one of the things I like to do when I'm listening to someone share their wisdom is I like to think in terms of, I don't take notes on quotes or the words. I take notes and put it all in question format. So I've got like 20 yeah. questions here. Oh, on okay. the sheet and, <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> uh, well, well, not questions necessarily to ask, questions ah, that I'm going to write in my journal and think about how I think through this. And what you've inspired in me is this question. How do we hold our own beliefs? Also, you know, respect the beliefs of others if they're mm-hmm. different. All right, yeah. How do we do that? Because that's yeah. where we see all this polarization out there nowadays mm-hmm. is that if they don't say the same thing or believe your narrative, then they are shunned. Yes. You know? And a very real thing in 2023 September is this whole idea that it's COVID. We're three years in the COVID years and the whole vaccine, whether you got the jab or didn't get the jab, that was really polarizing. And you either Absolutely. took a side over here or there. A lot of people did. There were families that broke up because of that. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing to double down on what you just said is part of what happens is when we're so strongly entrenched in our thinking that we won't even listen to someone else because they have a different Mm -hmm. views. And where that really does us a disservice is we may have some things in common, but we so quickly focus on what we don't have in common that we won't even listen to it. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we'll continue to widen that divide. And it's how do we put our egos aside? And say, okay, I know I believe this really strongly, and I'm going to listen to you, genuinely listen to hear what's important to you about your beliefs, not with the understanding that you're going to change my mind, but so that I can understand why it's important. And then hopefully you'll listen to me. And it doesn't mean, again, that either one of us is going to change our views, but the impact of someone being willing to listen to us, like that is powerful in itself. I feel I could keep talking to you forever, and I appreciate the way you've shown up today. Where do we find out more about you, Christopher? If we want to go down the rabbit hole and see you on social media, online, or your website, where do we go and find you? Sure. So simple answer. There's a couple of places. You can find me on LinkedIn. You know you've got the right Christopher Veal because I have Vulnerability Vanguard in my title. So that's the way you'll find me there. For those that are interested in work around coaching or executive development, things like that, it's Echelon Left. It's E-C-H-E-L-O-N dash left. Dot com. It's a military formation. So, of course, I had to give homage to the military. If you're interested in learning more about the book, it's wholemanjourney.com, like W-H-O-L-E. And then if you want to hear about the podcast, you can find it on all the normal places you do. And the website is vulnerable-man.com. Vulnerable-man.com. Awesome. And this has been a real treat. And you've given me some great questions. And our listeners have got some great things to think about And I challenge everyone to take some action from here because this is all great to hear. Let's plug it into action. Let's be real, transparent, vulnerable. Let's level up. And ding, ding, ding. As we do that, it's time for the lightning round of questions here. That's right. We got lightning round questions. That's right, baby. That's right. We got some (laughs) lightning round coming. Okay, bring it. Yes, sir. Okay, let's bring it. So we've talked about crucial conversations a little while ago, a book. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you about books here for a sec. If you had to name, let's just say, up to three books that have had an impact in your life in some way, shape, or form, What might be between one to three books that have impacted you, Christopher? Okay. The first one that comes to mind is Atomic Habits by James Mm. Clear. That's probably the most recommended book I ever give. For anybody who's looking to create new habits or get rid of unhealthy habits, Atomic Habits, number one to the top of the list. Mm. Oh, love it. Okay. I'm going to put Crucial Conversations on that list as well, Mm. because I think it's just good, solid stuff. There's so many good books. (laughs) Okay. 
I'm going to leave it at that too. Cause like my next one is actually 14 books in one. So I'm, I'm going to leave it at those two. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I try, it, I, I try and cheat the answer. So I'm not going to do that to you. That's awesome. What a great response. <laughs> so let's go to uh, music. If you're a music person, is there a oh, song yeah. or a band or an artist that really just gets your bucket full and gets you inspired? Any day of the week, you will probably hear some Lenny Kravitz coming from me in my house at some point. So Lenny nice. is definitely up there. Prince is going to be up on the list. And I've got a pretty eclectic musical selection, so it varies, but Lenny's the most constant. Dude, you're taking me back to high school here when yeah. my high school basketball team and then high school golf team would play Prince and we'd play Seven. That's still oh, a song that has an emotional yeah. anchor to me. I play that before competitions in, in golf. And, yeah, Prince I, had I some that. range. Yes, that's some good music. We could go on Did for days talking about Prince. Did you have one Ooh, song? Like you know, I don't favorites? know that there was one. I mean... I remember back in the 80s, it was like, you weren't a fan of Prince. You were part of the movement. So, you know, I'm just going to say there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, then let's go to the final question here. The name of this podcast is the Eternal Optimist podcast. Mm -hmm. When I say Eternal Optimist, what does that mean to you? <sighs> I'm not going to take it at the literal sense. Here's what I'm going to say. When I hear Eternal Optimist, I think of a mindset. And it's how do you want to choose to show up? and continue choosing to show up. Because it can be easy in a single moment to say, I'm gonna be optimistic here, but how do you really live it? So that's what comes to mind when you ask that question. Mm, powerful, thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Christopher Field, the whole mm. man of Vulnerable <laughs> Man Podcast. And it's just been a real pleasure. So check out his TEDx talk and Christopher, it's been a pleasure, man. Love you. Oh, Matt, Appreciate thank you, you for having there. me here. <laughs> yes, sir.